Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The End of Policing. We are on Chapter 9, Border Policing, and we are beginning on the section entitled Reforms. While the inauguration of President Donald Trump withered much of the will to reform border policing, there are still efforts to rethink how we manage the need for migrant workers who have become central to several parts of the American economy. Some argue for a return to a system of foreign worker authorization similar to the Bracero program. While this program did reduce the flow of unauthorized immigration and created some regularized employment for Mexico's poorest workers, it did not stem all illegal immigration and did little to improve the living standards of either American or Mexican workers. Part of the problem is that migrant workers are not limited to agricultural work. Migrants work in a variety of construction, production, and service industries, including construction, food processing, domestic work, and cleaning. What the Bracero program did was guarantee a stable, low-cost, and compliant workforce for agricultural producers who wanted to keep wages extremely low. Sorry about that, turning the page. The program allowed employees, excuse me, the, pl- the program allowed employers to blacklist anyone who complained or attempted to organize. Today's migrant farm workers are not covered by minimum wage laws, have few enforceable workplace protections, are routinely exposed to dangerous chemicals, and receive only the most minimal access to housing, health, education, and welfare services. A new Bracero program won't fix that. It will merely institutionalize it. If we want to raise the standard of living of agricultural workers, we have to allow them to organize, pay them higher wages, and enforce necessary health and safety standards. If U.S. citizens can make higher wages doing this work, more of them might choose to do it. As it stands now, employers prefer to hire undocumented migrants precisely because they know that organized resistance is much less likely among this population. Unions have at times made the mistake of thinking that excluding new migrants, legal or undocumented, would automatically improve conditions for U.S. workers. While it's true that strikes have been broken by bringing in undocumented scab workers, in many cases this is not what really happens. Instead, employers regularly rely on racial minorities who are authorized to work, consciously taking advantage of the racial antipathies that they themselves have worked hard to create in order to keep workers divided and playing one group against another. It is very hard for unions with predominantly white memberships to tell black workers, whom they've historically excluded, not to cross the picket line. Increasingly, the AFL-CIO has come to realize that the only hope for improving the lives of working people is to foster broad solidarity rather than antagonism. While many union locals retain anti-immigrant sentiments, the AFL-CIO's official position is to protect the rights of all workers, regardless of immigration status, and to encourage organizing along those same lines. Heavy-handed immigration policing will not build a workers' movement. It will shatter it. 
One of the mistakes that Trump supporters make is imagining that their own economic conditions will be improved by continuing to exploit foreign lands while excluding those who suffer as a result. That analysis assumes that the wealth generated by that process will somehow trickle down to American workers. The last 20 years have taught us that these global economic arrangements do not include national allegiance on the part of corporations or sharing wealth within national economies. The wealth of the United States has increased dramatically in the last two decades, but all of that growth has gone exclusively to the richest 10%. The rest of us have seen wages and government services decrease. Our standard of living is not declining because of migrants, but because of unregulated neoliberal capitalism, which has allowed corporations and the rich to avoid paying taxes or decent wages. It is that system that must be changed. In 2010, the DOJ's Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, COPS, funded the Vera Institute to study best policing practices in communities with large numbers of immigrants. It surveyed hundreds of departments and focused on eight principles. Get to the root causes of crime, maximize resources, leverage partnerships, focus on the vulnerable, engage in broad outreach, train both law enforcement in the community, monitor success and failure, and sustain programs that work. Embedded in these principles is the idealized notion of community policing critiqued in earlier chapters. This approach places police at the center of solving community problems by enhancing their resources, broadening their reach, and shaping community action and perceptions through outreach and training based on policing priorities. There is certainly value in having police speak multiple languages, respect cultural differences, and focus on the needs of those most victimized. However, in the Vera study, there is very little discussion of the profound conflicts of mission in policing these communities. It is listed, for instance, only one mention of sanctuary cities. In several examples, police are applauded for hiring civilians as translators and community outreach educators. But why should these resources be attached to and under the control of the police department? There should be core functions of local civilian government and exist independently of law enforcement. Excuse me. These should be core functions of local civilian government and exist independent of law enforcement. If we want immigrants, documented or not, to be more integrated into society, more likely to report crime and better able to defend themselves from predators, we should instead look to end all federal immigration policing, remove social barriers in housing and employment, and acknowledge their important role in revitalizing communities and stimulating economic activity. And then that brings us to a that brings us to the end of reform and to the beginning of alternatives. Uh, okay, so. The connection between immigration and labor is something that stands out a lot to me and how I think when I read this before, I didn't really think about the connection between immigration and labor and how those two things, those two issues 
feed off of each other. And that makes that brings me to the idea of understanding how how much the I, the issue of labor and wages are connected to the last three forms of policing that we read, starting with sex work, then the war on drugs, and now the border policing. All three of those things have heavy connections with with labor and and fights for livable the struggle for livable wages and how not having those livable wages contributes to some of the violent crime that takes place that contributes to some of the other social issues that we have. Uh, And so that's just something else that stands out. And the exploitation, the constant exploitation that people of color and and, in here specifically speaking about a lot of Mexicans deal with is something that is in this country. It just, you know, again, goes to highlight the different portrayal that this country has on the outside as opposed to what it deals with in reality on the inside. And I think that it's very good that Alex Vitale took the time to point out the, the important role that immigrants play in the country, that immigrants play in our society. And I think that that is one of the things I... And I've probably said this before, but one of the things that is important about this book is that he speaks about these issues from a very human standpoint and by putting empathy and humanity at the forefront. And I think that that is what we have to do when it's time to uh, have conversations about these things. And then after that, you know, and, and also he does do the job of pointing out the financial implications that police being involved in these different forms of our society that they have on us as a government. I mean, that they have on us, that they have on the government, but they ha- that they have on us as a country. Uh, okay. Alternatives. Border policing is hugely expensive and largely ineffective and produces substantial collateral harms, including mass criminalization, violations of human rights, unnecessary deaths, the breakup of families, and racism and xenophobia. Unfortunately, both dominant political parties have embraced this expansion, whether as a part of a system of restricted and managed legalization or as part of a fantasy of closing the border. Rather than debating how many additional Border Patrol agents to employ, we should instead move to largely depolice the border. Borders are inherently unjust, and as Reese Jones points out in his book, Violent Borders, they reproduce inequality, which is backed up by the violence of state actors and the indignity and danger of being forced to cross borders illegally. Until the Clinton administration, unauthorized cross-border migration was widespread yet it did not lead to the collapse of the American economy or culture. In fact, in many ways it strengthened it, giving rise to new economic sectors, revitalizing long-abandoned urban neighborhoods, and better integrating the U.S. into the global economy. When the EU lowered its internal borders, there were fears that organized crime would benefit, local cultures would be undermined, that mass migration would create economic chaos as poor southern Europeans moved north. None of this happened. In fact, migration decreased as the EU began developing poorer areas within Europe as a way of producing greater economic and social stability. 
We could do the same thing in North America, but instead have largely done the opposite. The North American Free Trade Agreement had devastating consequences for agricultural production in Mexico, displacing and impoverishing millions. The end of state-subsidized corn farming in Oaxaca led to the collapse of the rural economy there, driving hundreds of thousands to attempt to migrate to the U.S. Similar processes are widespread in Mexico. Drug-related violence that further contributes to the stream of migrants from Mexico and Central America is also directly related to the historical and current interdiction efforts of the U.S. war on drugs. By opening the doors to capital and goods, but not people, we have created tremendous pressure to migrate. We have created tremendous pressure to migrate. Instead... We should be opening the borders and working to develop the poorest parts of the United States and Mexico. This would create economic and social stability and development that might reduce the extent of migration. The $15 billion a year we spend now on border policing could go a long way toward that goal. It turns out that most people would rather stay in their own cultural setting than migrate if given the opportunity. Unfortunately, we must work toward developing a more internationalist ethos and analysis. The reality is that people in Central America and Mexico are poor, partially because of U.S. economic policies. By consistently subverting democracy, we have helped create the dreadful poverty in those places. In 2009, the U.S. government backed the coup against the democratically elected left-wing government in Honduras. That government is now torturing, executing, and disappearing environmental and labor activists. This was just the most recent in a long string of foreign direct and indirect interventions in the politics of Central America, including Ronald Reagan's backing of dictatorships in El Salvador and Guatemala, as well as the Contras' attempt to overthrow the leftist government in Nicaragua. Once we understand migration is a global process driven in large part by the policies of our own government, we in the United States should feel obligated to end those practices and open our doors to those fleeing them. Migrants are human beings who are no better and no worse than Americans and should enjoy the same rights and opportunities. As the group Immigrant Movement International notes, Migrants have as much right to international movement as, quote, corporations and international elites, end quote. Quote, the only law deserving of our respect is an unprejudiced law, one that protects everyone, everywhere. No exclusions, no exceptions, end quote. We should be working to improve the conditions where people come from and allowing them access to the opportunities we have. We cannot and should not rely on ever more intensive, violent, and oppressive border policing to manage problems that we ourselves help create. Okay, and that brings us to the end of Chapter 9, Border Policing. Uh, and we'll end, we're going to end this episode here, and then we'll start Chapter 10, Political Policing, on the next episode. And we'll do a small little reflection here on some of the alternatives that were brought up and. I think the the main alternative that I think is important that was brought up is is an allocating of resources to help countries near us to not be in the type of desperation that they're in. 
it is uh, they talked about a, a changing of the politics that is in this country, the economic politics in this country that leads to countries that are near us being in this type of desperate situation. And again, uh, I think that one of the things that is important about this book is that Alex Vitale ties these issues of policing not only to local issues and then but to national issues and then eventually to global issues and i think that that is one of the key components of any of any successful struggle is being able to communicate about how these things affect people locally then communicate how they affect people nationally and then communicate how they affect us globally and then using those using that to build a base and so we we see here how uh, the the reason we have some of the issues we have at the border is because of uh, decisions our government and actions our government has taken in other countries. So I'm going to end this episode here because it's starting to rain and I'm going to have to move some of my stuff. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put out these episodes on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. We're going to holler at y'all tomorrow.